Uh, make sure your Bibles are, are in your lap. We're going to be looking at a few different verses today, like we did last week. Uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 6, so turn there first. We're going to look at a few different New Testament passages to sort of open up uh, what Paul is getting at in this passage. As you know, we are, are, we are in a series um, about spiritual armor, which corresponds directly to the concept of spiritual warfare. Uh, warfare is a, is a metaphor we're given over and over in Scripture for living the Christian life. It, it, it's, not, it's not spiritual boogeymanism. It, it's just the reality. When you become a Christian, a spiritual war was fought to make you a Christian. We don't even recognize that because we were dead during the war. But we learned that Christ bought us and made us his own while we were still dead because we were in bondage to sin. He overcame Satan. He plundered Satan of Satan's um, reign. And many came to him. Many brethren have been saved and are continuing to be saved. Uh, but there is a, there's a battle going on. There has been a battle for your soul, which Christ has won. And there's an ongoing battle as a Christian that you live in, walk in daily. And this this sermon series is really to open our eyes to that fact so that we're not sitting at the wheel asleep, so that we're not just coasting through as Christians. And so I, I hope that that sort of frames this for you a little bit. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses sort of 10 down to 20, give us the full treatise uh, that Paul gives us on spiritual armor. I'm going to read seven verses for you, starting at verse 10. And from there, we're going to get our uh, piece of armor that we're looking at today. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That was our first week. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That was our second week. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. That was last week. And in verse 17, and... Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying in all times uh, to, in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So this morning we are looking at the helmet of salvation. Next week we're going to close with the Word of God and prayer um, in terms of our sermon series. And so last week we looked at the shield of faith, which is exclusively a defensive piece of armor. Right? We talked about how to stand firm against Satan's attacks, uh, there is no offensive way to dodge flaming arrows. You just need to get behind your shield and make sure that the arrows hit the shield instead of you. That is defense, right? You play defense with the, fa- the shield of faith. And, and that is to extinguish the darts. And we looked at how Satan's attacks are predominantly in the areas that we would enjoy most in terms of sinful indulgence. We looked at how the New Testament really supports the idea that Satan attacks best through sin, through temptation. And and basically, we play defense by trusting in God's word over and against what we feel. So normally, what we would feel would be to say, well, I I deserve this, or who's this going to hurt, or no one will ever know, I can do this in secret. That is 
trusting in our feelings and how we want to respond to those attacks. But the Word of God shows us a better way, right? It was like when Moses uh, determined not to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin in Egypt, but chose the reproach of Christ with God's people. And so that was a a fantastic model for us in the shield of faith. Uh, But this piece of armor... I promised we were going to get offensive, right? And, and helmet you may think of as a defensive part of armor as well, right? Because it's obviously if something knocks you in the head, it's going to protect you. But really what Paul is doing here is he's moving into the offensive elements of spiritual warfare. The helmet is grouped in here with the sword. They're paired together. Take the helmet and the sword. They're sort of the last two pieces that a soldier would get. You would put the, sh- the strap for the shield over the body, over the shoulders, so you didn't want your helmet on yet at that point as a soldier. You would, the shield would be sort of be the second last thing. And then your helmet would go on. And then once you have your shield in one hand, your free hand takes the sword, which may or may not be sheathed. Uh, but the order is very important. And these last two elements are paired together. They represent the offensive armor in the battle. And I'm going to just lay my cards on the table. I'm going to show you that the helmet of salvation... It motivates and promotes your purity. I'm going to show you that. I'm going to show you why. It motivates and promotes your purity, which breeds in you boldness. Okay, moral purity in God's eyes is not pointless. It's not just to put you on a little shelf and you're, as a little trophy. Some people say well, we are all trophies of grace. Yes, but we are much more than trophies. We are soldiers. Your purity, your redemption is not just to put you on display as a shiny little person. And so purity promotes boldness. And so the first thing that salvation does is it motivates and promotes our purity, which breeds boldness. And the second major thing it does is that it elevates our ambition for Christ. It elevates your ambition for Christ. That's what the helmet of salvation does. And I'm going to show you that. And this is why we need to look at a few passages in the New Testament. And I'm going to, I'm going to launch here. And, and I, I, honestly, it drives me nuts when preachers do this, so bear with me, but I want to show you right off the top the concept that Paul has in mind when he says the helmet of salvation. He's thinking in terms of hope, and that's, that's what really drives a lot of this sermon. That's what really drives a lot of this concept. It's not just a helmet because it's something that you know and it's in your brain. Salvation gives us hope, and Paul makes that explicit in 1 Thessalonians 5, and, and we couldn't begin a message without recognizing that this is the sort of the dual meaning Paul has here for the helmet. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on, and he uses armor here. This is 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he uses the exact same metaphor in 1 Thessalonians 5 as he does here in Ephesians chapter 6. But in in 1 Thessalonians 5, he gives us one extra little concept that that I think is intrinsic to what he means about salvation. And that is, as your helmet, put on the hope that comes from salvation. The hope that comes from salvation. And so the first thing we need to do, if we're going to stand firm in the evil day, having put every piece of armor on, is that we need to establish our hope. You need to establish your hope this morning. You need to figure out where your hope is, what it's anchored in, and how you know it. And I want to show you 
three or four areas in the New Testament that are going to describe to you what your hope is and how it pertains to salvation. And the chief one is 1 Peter 1. Because I want you to establish your hope this morning. I want you to figure out what Paul has in mind when he says the hope of salvation. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 describes this hope. Listen carefully. If you're already there, you can follow along, but otherwise just listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's you right now. You have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Remember that word inheritance, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for, here's that key phrase, you're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Christ. So the first thing you need to recognize about your salvation, your salvation you do not have yet. And this is a concept that may be new to you, but I want to posit to you that you are not yet saved. According to the language of Scripture, you are not yet saved. You are born again. You have been made a new creation in Christ. But our faith tells us that salvation is coming in the future. This is the reason why. Peter says, you have been born again to a living hope, which is your salvation, which is ready. It's kept in heaven. It's being guarded and it's going to be revealed in the last time. When is our salvation revealed? I'll tell you. It's when Jesus comes back his second time, which is the present hope of every generation that Christ will return. But when he returns, he's not coming on a donkey into Jerusalem with sandals on his feet. Okay? As a, as a lowly, um, meek human to deal with sin. He's coming back on a horse with flaming vengeance to destroy his enemies. The picture of his second return is very different from the virgin birth in a stable that we're going to look at in December. His second coming is to wipe out wickedness. It's to destroy rebellion. It's to punish evil forever. Now, why is that good news? Because according to your faith, you will be saved from that judgment. The saving that we need is the ultimate saving when God ultimately destroys sin and sinners. That's the salvation we need. Because if you'll notice, Christians and non-Christians often get along fine in terms of our physical enjoyment in the world. I mean, what do we have that we can really say we have been saved now? You know, the, the unbeliever might say, well, look it, I make more money than you. I have a more comfortable life than you. I've had more girlfriends than you. You know, I have, I have ways of cheating on my taxes that you don't have. Like, my life actually looks better. So how do we look at an unbeliever and say, we have salvation coming? It's because in the end, you need salvation. You need to be spared that judgment of God. You need to be spared that, that judgment against sin. And so number one, we need to recognize that our hope in salvation, 
Our faith is linear. It's not circular. History is not just arbitrarily repeating itself. You know, some become Christians, some don't. People die, and then things go on until the, basically the sun explodes and the earth experiences heat death. No, no, no. Our faith is linear. And the word for that that theologians use is eschatological, which means eschaton, age. It is the age to come. It's what is going to happen. Eschatology is the study of where is everything going? What's going to happen in the end? And our faith necessarily speaks to the future. That's why we are all prophets in, in, the, in the new covenant. We all know what's coming. Our faith is linear. It speaks to the end of all things. Your faith is not just your testimony. Your faith is not just, oh, God freed me from addiction. God made my marriage better. You know, God gave me hope and a purpose. Although the, all of those things may be true. Your faith speaks to the eschaton. What is going to happen? Christ is going to return. Salvation is coming. Salvation is coming. So that's number one. You need to figure out and recognize that you're, you have a future hope. This is not all there is to your Christian faith. Salvation promises a final salvation and, and it's, it's oneness with God. So that's, that's a critical thing to understand in terms of what Paul is saying about the salvation being a helmet. Another verse I want to look at is Romans chapter 8, 29. Romans 8, 29. And this is that our hope, number one, is salvation. Our hope, number two, is certain. Our hope, number two, is certain. Hope kind of sounds like taking a stab into the dark, right? Well, like I sure hope that happens. I hope we get our house that we bid on, you know? I, I, I hope that my kids turn out okay. It's just sort of like could happen, might not. Our hope in salvation, the Bible tells us, is certain. There's no uncertainty. Hope is secure. And it's in uh, Romans 8.29 that we see this. And we know, starting in verse 28, that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified in other words christ's resurrection was a first fruit it was the first born of this new covenant it was the firstborn that we would be welcomed into the firstborn of many brethren we all follow christ as a family into god's presence Christ is the certainty of your hope because Christ was raised from the dead so you will be raised from the dead. If you have been called, you have been justified, you will also be glorified. I love this passage because it gives us a link. It gives us a chain link of God's activity in your life. Those whom he, also, he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. The chain is unbroken. If God knew you from eternity past to be his child, you will be glorified. Full stop. You will be glorified. Your hope is certain according to Romans chapter 8. And then quickly back to 1 Thessalonians 4, number 3. Our hope is ultimate, which means that our hope pertains to that which is most important. Again, if our faith is just, well, you know, you could, you could be free from that addiction to drugs... Or, hey, you know, your marriage could be a lot better. That would be a great hope, wouldn't it? 
It's great. It would be nice to look forward to those things. But what if those things are not ultimate? We need a hope that gives us the ultimate. What is most important to humanity? 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, which is those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since... We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This is when he returns. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. This is the, this is the end of the eschaton. This is the return of Jesus Christ. With the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, and this is what our hope is in, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And this is it. So we will always be with the Lord. Your hope is ultimate. You will always be with the Lord. That is what you need. It does not matter your financial shortfalls in this life. It does not matter if you get the career promotion or not. It does not matter if, if your car is more than 10 years old and your friends all drive new ones. Ultimately, your hope is that when you are caught up with Christ, you will be with him forever. Our hope pertains to that which is ultimate. There, there is no higher reality for a human being than this hope to be with Christ forever So your hope is salvation to be revealed. Your hope is certain. It will not uh, disintegrate or or pass you over. And your hope is ultimate. It guarantees and grants your greatest need, which is to be in the presence of God forever. Friends, if your hope is not established in this, you have shaky hope. If your hope is not in a secure future based on God's sovereignty in your life and the coming judgment over sin, you have shaky hope. You need to study the scriptures and find out how God gives you hope. I love this in Psalm 16. The writer of Psalm 16 says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. In other words, things are good for me. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's what the writer of the Psalm says. The line, things are good for me. You know, I might not have all the puzzle pieces together. I might have trouble here. I might have physical health issues there. I might have all kinds of tragedy, but the lines are pleasant because I have a beautiful inheritance. I have a guarantee that is coming at the end of the age, and I know it. I love this passage. Paul, when he writes to Timothy much later in his life, he's he's rounding the corner. He is... He's almost finished. He says this to, P, um, to Timothy, the pastor. He says, uh, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ in who his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until what? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So everything we do as Christians, as ministers, as moms, as dads, as accountants, everything we do recognizes that Christ is coming back and that we need to guard faith and guard our confession and guard our hope until Christ appears. At that time, he will reckon justice. At that time, he will gather the elect. At that time, he will bring an end 
to the world as we know it and establish his everlasting kingdom, consummate it. And so the first thing I would ask us to do is establish your hope. Ask yourself, is, is this my hope? Am I hoping in a final salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that my hope? Because you cannot stand firm in the evil day if you do not have this hope on as a helmet. You cannot withstand the evil day if your hope is not rooted in these realities. So let's talk about how does the helmet work? How is salvation a helmet? How does the helmet function as a piece of armor? Again, I don't want to just give you theological concepts and say, now go stand firm. I want you to find out how Paul intends this to make you a soldier. How does hope and salvation uh, take you from somebody sitting on your couch quietly, spiritually speaking, passive, out of the race, out of the fight, to in the fight? What changes in you as you put this helmet on? Paul wants us to understand. Number one, it's that this hope promotes purity. And in light of our hope, we pursue moral and sexual purity. Now, that sounds like totally out of the blue from our text. That, that is not explicitly in the text in Ephesians six seventeen. It doesn't say, you know, thus because of this helmet, put it on and be pure. But the hope of salvation is bound up with this concept that they are so intertwined, we cannot help ourselves. And the apostle John, who wrote a letter, he gives us this explicitly. And as I said, I told you, I'm going to take you around a little bit because you need to understand what is bound up in these concepts together. 1 John 3, 3 says this. I'm going to look at verse 2 first. Beloved, we are God's children now. This you now. You're born again as a child of God. I love this concept. But what we will be has not yet appeared. You are not yet fully transformed. You are not yet fully realized in your new identity. You are born again. You are a child of God. But what we will be has not yet appeared. John says this, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. Do you ever wonder, when am I going to stop struggling with sin? When am I going to stop struggling with injustice? When is this finally, when is this done? Sometimes we're weary in the fight. Sometimes we're wearily trotting along asking when. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, who will set me free from this body of death? But when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall know him and see him as he is. In other words, when you behold the risen Christ with your eyes, you will be transformed instantly. In the twinkle of an eye, Paul says, your sanctification process will no longer be slow. It will no longer be uh, periodic. It will no longer be incremental. Your sanctification will explode in a moment from struggling to perfection when you see Christ. The process is over when Christ appears. We are gathered to him and we are one and we are morally equivalent to Christ. Do you understand that? We shall be like him. The, right, the practical righteousness between Christ and you will not be different. It would be blasphemous to speak of us in, in those terms now, right? No matter how good you think you are, there is no moral equivalency between us and our Savior, practically speaking. But when we see him, we will be like him in a moment. 
but what do we do in the meantime? Verse 3. This is 1 John 3, 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So don't use that future hope of moral purity as an excuse to be wretched now. That's the point. Don't say, well, you know, one day I'll be pure. I mean, God knows, right? Everyone who hopes in that reality gets ready for that reality. I hope the jump is minimal, right? Do you know what I mean? I hope the jump from who I am and who I will be gets smaller and smaller and smaller as each day passes. No doubt there will be sin to overcome in that last moment where we are transformed. But he who hopes thus purifies himself even as he is pure. In other words, we strive for Christ's likeness. We strive to become pure. We strive to own who Christ is, to become like him, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Put off the old self, Ephesians chapter 3 and 4 described for us. Put off the old self. Put on the new self, which is in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It has been bought for you. It is available to you. Put it on. That verse that we looked at in 1 Thessalonians 5 at the very beginning, Paul said, those who get drunk do so at night. But those who are the children of God, we are children of the day. And that's tied again with this helmet of hope. So there's a a connection between the hope of salvation and the acknowledgement of who we are in Christ, that we are children of the day, that we don't participate in the deeds of darkness, that we don't go along with the, the sin patterns of the world. Because we, all, we have on the helmet of salvation. We are children of the day. We have been brought out of the night. There is a moral connection with the hope that we have in Christ, which is our salvation. And that is to say, do not participate in those deeds of darkness. Ephesians 5 says, even expose them. Don't participate in that which takes place at night, but expose it. Purify yourself. So my friends, what Paul is saying here is that there is a link between your view of the future and what you do today. There is a link between what you think is going to happen in the future to the world, to you, to Christianity, and what you do today. That is that it really matters. Those who are indulging in sin, who are blinded by sin, those addicted in sin practices and sin patterns, Satan does not have to worry about. No attack is needed. They are already doing his will. Those who are blinded by the passion and pride of life, totally ignorant to the schemes of God, totally ignorant to the plan and salvation of God, they are already doing Satan's work. Satan need not pay attention to those people. It's like you need your kids to be quiet for a couple hours. What do you do? You give them an iPad. That's like us with sin and Satan. This will keep you busy. No worries. And that's why standing on guard with the hope of salvation with a view to the future, it affects how we interact with those attacks. It affects how we think about the time that we spend and what we are doing and to what extent we, we are satisfied with sin in our lives. Do you ever think over the sin patterns either in your thoughts or in your actions and just think, I just don't think it's that big a deal. I, I really don't. I've been there. Where I review some of the mental habits that I have or the, the moral um, imperfections that I have, and I just think of them, and I just say, I, I just don't think it's that big a deal. I know people way worse than me. Is that regarding the hope of salvation 
in reality? Or am I playing exactly into devil's, Satan's satisfaction? Oh, well, enjoy your sin then, right? Well, like we looked at last week. We were looking at, actually, I had a pastor's meeting on Monday and um, over Skype. And this is one of the concepts. We were actually, we were talking about uh, pastoral purity. And we were talking about this idea that a pastor's boldness, and this can apply to all of you, your boldness in serving Christ is very often directly linked with your personal purity. Now, why would that be? What is that all about? Proverbs 28 says, uh, verse 1 says, The righteous are bold as a lion, but the wicked flee when no one pursues. In other words, you want to serve Christ wholeheartedly? You want to be a bold evangelist? You want, to, you want to be on fire for him? You want to get up and be motivated to read the scriptures and to teach them to your children? Get rid of your secret sin. Because don't all of us feel like, I mean, your conscience eats away at you. You know you're a hypocrite. When you try to serve Christ with secret sin, you flee when no one's pursuing. Again, Satan does not have to worry about you because you're running around so worried you're going to get caught in your sin. Think of a church planter or an evangelist goes into a town and says, I'm going I'm to fire up this church for the Lord. I'm going to disciple people. I'm going to evangelize people. But if there's secret sin in the background, he's not going to be very bold, right? Because all it takes is that one, I mean, you know the Me Too culture, right? They're going to find some tweet, some search history on your internet. You will be found out. And those who are indulging in secret sin are just, they're afraid, they flee when no one's pursuing. There's, there's no boldness. But the righteous, that doesn't mean the morally perfect. Of course, I don't assume myself to be perfect or you either. But when you know you are living before the Lord, honestly repenting of your sin and rooting out sin in your life, you are bold. This is why the hope of salvation is an offensive weapon. Because as we recognize that our salvation is coming and we are purifying ourselves, we become bold. In other words, what causes a soldier to rush into battle? I would put to you that he might do it with any other piece of armor missing. A soldier might run into battle without his shoes on. A soldier might even, feeling risky, run into battle without his shield, thinking, you know, I can probably last for a little while. But without a helmet, that might be the one thing that the soldier says, just at least give me a helmet. Just give me something. You ever see old pictures of Wayne Gretzky in the 80s? It looked like they had a, a, a yogurt container on their head. And those were not quality helmets, but they had something, right? And it's like, just something. Just put that helmet on, and that gives the soldier confidence. That, not, that some, I mean, if you ever whack your head on a cupboard or something, it does not take much to really incapacitate you, right? If you're going down the stairs and you whack your head on the, the landing, like I do, I'm 6'2", it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much of a, a conk in the head to totally incapacitate you in what you're trying to do. If you're in the heat of battle and one of your teammates, you know, the end of his, the handle of his sword comes up and knocks you, you might be down for five minutes. The helmet is critical for keeping the focus and confidence of that soldier. That's why the helmet is so critical. And that's why our view of salvation and how bold we are directly affects whether or not we are even in the fight. William Gurnall, who I was reading this week, has written extensively on the armor of God. Listen to this. He says, Most men are more tender of skin than of conscience, 
And they hath rather the gospel provide them armor to defend their bodies from death and danger than their souls from sin and Satan. In other words, many of us may wish that the gospel protected us physically. As long as I don't have to suffer, I like that kind of gospel. But they will indulge in all kinds of sin and wickedness thinking that that's not a big deal. Thinking that they won't escape it. In other words, they're too tender of skin and hard of their consciences. Whereas we need to be the other way around. We need to be willing to be in the battle, willing to have our skin slashed for the gospel, figuratively speaking. In some places it's literal. But knowing that our souls are protected. Knowing that our souls are guarded by God against Satan. So this hope promotes your purity. Next, this hope raises your ambition. And again, this is directly linked with the war metaphor. What soldier is going to rush into battle being totally self-conscious of what he's doing? None. A soldier cannot be thinking about his past, about the fight that he had with his wife that night. A soldier can't be thinking about what if the IRS comes and catches me on my, my cheated tax? What if someone's checking my internet history at home right now while I'm in this battle? Soldier can't be thinking about that. Soldier has to have his mind in the battle and the helmet of salvation, the hope that promotes purity is going to accomplish that for him. That's number one. Number two, it raises our ambition. In other words, the soldier has to have some idea of what he's doing and what he wants to accomplish. There has to be some victory in mind. And I would argue that the hope of salvation provides us with that structure, provides us with that ambition. I would say in our spiritual battle that we war just as much against trivial pursuit as we do against sin. Where are your ambitions at for Christ? Where are your ambitions at? Again, the soldier who worries about the angle of the edge of his sword at the grinding wheel for too long will be lost and the battle will pass him by. Triviality. Sometimes I'm getting my kids ready to go outside to play and it's, you know, the, the, the twist of the sock can sometimes, we'll, we'll be standing there for 10 minutes getting a sock on just right because kids don't always see the big picture, right? Or the way the, the way the mitten sits in the jacket and it's like, just once you get outside, you'll understand. You'll understand once you're in the battle. Just get on with it. Raise your ambition, in other words. And I think that the hope of salvation provides that for us. William Gurnell also wrote, Armor is not given for men to wear by the fireside at home, but in the field. Again, we are not meant to be trophies on display. Heaven forbid, you know, we get when Christ comes that our armor be shiny and in great condition. I hope my armor is beat up, my, my sword is, is dulled and chipped, my helmet you know, battered and bruised, my, my soles of my shoes worn thin. I pray that when I come, when Christ comes back, that I am worn thin. That's my prayer for myself, for my family, that we would be worn thin for the gospel for Christ when he comes back. I do not want everything in perfect mint condition when Christ comes because then it has not been used. It has not been attended to. It has not been worn. It has not been utilized for the battle. Paul in Acts chapter 26, he goes to Rome and he stands on trial. This is again near the end of his life. And King Agrippa is standing there talking to Paul. And Paul's, and Paul's given a chance to defend himself. He represents himself in this trial. 
And Paul says, I am on trial. In other words, the thing that brought me here before this council, the thing that brought me here before you uh, criminal prosecutors is the hope of the promise given to our fathers. Paul was self-aware. Look, I recognize that you want me dead because of the hope that God has given my forefathers. I'm here because of the hope. I'm here because I've preached. I'm here because I have insisted on the lordship of Christ. I am here because I have preached the gospel, because I have traveled to every place I can possibly get to by foot, camel, boat, hitchhiking. Paul has just gone out for the gospel, and he says to King Agrippa, I'm here because of that hope. I love this concept of ambition because Romans 15, 20, same writer Paul says, I have made it my ambition to preach Christ everywhere where he is not known that I might not lay on somebody else's foundation. He had a specific ambition in Christ. He had some distinct idea of what his calling was in Jesus Christ. I make it my ambition to preach Christ where he has not yet been known. In other words, he's like, you know, for some guys, they might settle down and be a pastor for a long time at a church. That's great. Paul's like, not for me. I want to go where the rocks are going to be thrown the hardest. I want to go where people are most ignorant of Jesus Christ. I want to go where the risk is the highest. Paul said, that's my ambition. Do you think that somebody could just muster that up within themselves just to prove a point? I don't. I think he was aware of his coming salvation. He was aware of the finiteness of his life, the time limit that he was given. Now, we know Paul was an unmarried man. He was free to give his entire life, his entire finances. I mean, that guy would not have made a very stable husband. We can acknowledge that, okay? So if you're a married dude and you're like, what on earth is Tim calling me to? You can relax a little bit, okay? It, it probably does not mean uproot your wife and kids, you know, tomorrow and, and go do something insane for the gospel. Paul was an unmarried man, but yet he sets for us this idea of ambition. And here's what I would say to, to you parents that, and I fall into this category with you, what's your ambition for your kids? What's your ambition for your kids? Maybe you're just praying, you know, Lord, I just pray that they don't apostatize. I just pray they don't abandon the faith. That would be good enough for me. I would, I would exhort you to raise your ambition. Get it, get it somewhere over. I hope they don't deny Christ too. I pray God makes them into a missionary, a preacher, a bold proclaimer of the faith, a wise carpenter, a, a skillful plumber, a faithful garbage man. And I'm talking about faithful in Christ. I'm talking about people who transform the culture by their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Maybe that should be our ambition for our children. That's not an ambition the world would care much about. But how do we evaluate our ambitions in Christ? Do we evaluate it in light of what is now, what is here? Got to make sure they have their post-secondary education. The education is wonderful. I wish I had more. But if your ambition is merely to say, I, I just hope they get that certain status so that they can fall into this certain category in the world's eyes, that's a low ambition. You might have young kids, little, little kids, and think, you know, I just hope X, Y, Z for them. Let's set our ambitions really high for the next generation. Let's train them up in the ways of Christ, in the word of God. Let us make that a, our ambition. Let that transform how we spend our time with them. I think it's biblical to have really high ambition in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with setting good goals 
for your life in terms of career or financial planning or which house to buy. God commands us to plan as, as, as far and as well as we can, saying, if the Lord wills. There's nothing wrong with doing well in life. But make sure you have high ambition spiritually in Christ because of the hope of salvation, because it's not just circular. There will be a last generation. There will be a final housing crash after which Christ returns. The stock market will only rise so high before Jesus returns and it becomes meaningless. So I pray that the hope of salvation raises our ambition. So if salvation is coming, how are we actually living? And, and I'm not doing this type of preaching that, you know, as you blink right now, Christ could suddenly come back. And it, it's not about living in fear that Christ might be around the next corner. And like, he's not a boogeyman. It's live your life there's a Latin phrase, quorum Deo, in the face of God. Live as if God truly is Lord and has a plan and that there is a coming salvation. I love this in 2 Timothy. Paul said, right at the end of his last letter that he ever wrote, he said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He's picturing himself in the Hebrew sacrifice as a drink offering being poured out of a cup. And he said, I'm almost done. There's only a few drops left in the glass. He says, my life is already being poured out. And he says this to Timothy, self-aware, without any pride or arrogance in any way, but a total self-assurance about his life. What does Paul say? I have fought the fight. I have run the race. What's the outcome of running the race? Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And not only me, he's like, not just me, not just because I'm an apostle, you, you might think, oh, pastors must get a greater reward than garbage men. No, 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 no. This crown of righteousness is laid up for what? Everyone who loved the appearance of his coming. How do you love the appearance of his coming if it hasn't happened yet? You hope in it. You, you anticipate it. You pray for it. You live in light of it. So we raise our ambitions to fight the good fight, to continue on in the race. So how should we think about this? Well, number one, we should recognize that we don't just fight the battle because we love being you know, tough Christians. We should recognize that Christ has already won the war against Satan. He has already defeated Satan in all of his far-reaching powers. And our walking in victory is a mere advancement of that victory. We are ambassadors advancing the interests of Christ's kingdom, already given full authority over that territory. Friends, Christ has authority over your family. He has authority over Smith's Falls. He has authority over your office place. He has authority over McDonald's and whatever seat you find your friend sitting in. He has authority over every church in this town, whether they recognize it or not. There is no place that our advancement is not welcome in the name of Christ. It doesn't mean it will come easy, but it does mean you have authority. You have authority to advance the interests of Christ in his kingdom as you live your life. My friends, that means your own children. 
I wonder if sometimes some of us just think like, you know, who am I to shape my child? I want to let them decide for themselves. I'm going to sort of throw them into the waves and see what they decide. No, friends. Christ has authority over your children. He has authority over all things. And so the manner by which we live indicates to the world whether or not Christ is real or not. We say Christ is Lord. But then when the world sees us caving on every issue and, and living uh, afraid of the, Christ's morality and afraid of being called out to be a Christian, people look at us and say, I'm not even sure that guy believes it. Is this so life-transforming? Because this person is not even stepping out. Our helmet's sitting on a shelf at home and we're saying, ah, I got the shield, I got the thing, and, but I don't know. I'm not ready to rush into battle yet. And the world says, that looks silly. We talk tough behind screens. We talk tough in books and media campaigns. But do we assert Christ? Are we living faithfully for him when the battle is truly raging, when it's truly difficult, when there is something on the line? Friends, don't hear this message and say, well, I don't measure up. I'm no good. I've blown it. Of course you have. So have I. Day by day by day, I fail to live up to this standard. Christ is the victor. What Paul is giving us, all of this is in light of what Christ has done for you. You are secure in Christ, whatever your effectiveness on the battlefield. You're secure in Jesus Christ. But what Paul wants for us, what he desires for us is assurance and security. Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren, which means that he goes and he attacks and he accuses your conscience. He makes you, he says to you, you're not worthy to be Christ's. Look at your sin. Look at your sin. Look at your sin. He accuses. Christ says, look not on your sin. Look at my righteousness. Look at me. I am worthy. I am mighty. I defeated Satan. I died. I took God's wrath. I rose again. I ascended to heaven. I gave you authority. None of this is rooted in how well you perform. It's rooted in the merit of Jesus Christ. But it demands us to ask the question, he who hopes in this thus purifies himself. Is that the way we live? How do we spend our time? How do we invest? How do we educate our children? How many hours do we spend in ways that tell the world about what our true hope is? Where do we spend the most time? Who do we spend the most amount of time with? That says a lot about your worldview. It says a lot about what you believe about the world. And so I... Friends, I, I pray that Christ, by the power of his word and his spirit, through whom you live, is, is killing sin in your life, killing secret sin. And through that boldness, raising your ambition for Jesus Christ, raising your ambition in whatever field that he has called you to. My calling is not higher than your calling because I preach. There's, there's not a special place in heaven for me. So what is your calling? What is your ambition for Christ? How has he equipped you to serve him? Don't compare it to me. Don't compare it to your mom or your brother or your dad or the last good Christian you knew. What has Christ made and set out for you? Because you are the only person to fulfill that role. That's a cool thought, right? Hope is the assurance that though the battle, the battle is fiery, that our ultimate victory and safety is already guaranteed. That's what hope is. That's what salvation is. That though the battle is bloody, though it is hard, though it is nasty, though it rages on, your victory 
and your ultimate safety is even guaranteed. That doesn't mean you'll survive the battle, but it does mean that we have a home with Christ in eternity. There's a, there's a great saying, I think it was, every Christian is, is invincible until God's finished with them. I love that idea. You are literally invincible until Christ has completed his calling for your life. So what are you afraid of? You're invincible until Christ calls you away. And even so, we will be with him forever. And so in light of that, we can rush forward. The Christian faith is not one of retreat. It's not one of huddling down. It's not one of hiding in a bunker. It is a faith of advancement. It's a faith of growth. And I don't care what the culture looks like. I mean, the worse it gets, the greater the contrast between us and the church and the more potential there is for growth. And Christ is the one doing it. It's not me. It's not my wisdom. It's not my gifts. It's not anything I have to offer or you. Christ is the one building his church and he will do it. And, and we have just been graciously called into that vocation.